Father. Abba, Father. Our Father. We're so acquainted with the pains of this world. Even in our own life, it seems we only see failures, fighting, anger, frustration, confusion. But for those who are, who are you, for those who are yours, Know the reality of the miraculous work of the Spirit in our life and how you are the only one who brings peace and joy and comfort. So, Father, forgive us when we turn to worldly things that never satisfy and we exalt those things above you and we put those things in the place where you rightfully belong. Father, forgive us and continue to mold us into a church that will be yours, that will be set apart, sanctified ready for every good work as lights in this world, salt and light, a city on the hill. Remove the enemy from our hearts that tries to keep us in a state of self-deprecation, tries to keep the accusations above us. Let us replace the voice of truth and the spirit that says we are forgiven, that we are children of the most high God that you are faithful and you will never forsake us and we are royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart from your own possession, a people that will be used to bring the gospel into the world and a people that you will use miraculously to bring those who were lost in darkness into the light where they will experience the joy and the forgiveness that you've given us. God, make Summit Church this here in West Olive and Holland, Grand Haven, Allegan, all around it, whatever area you, you want us to infect and affect it, let it be that case through us and help us to love one another with the love that you have for us. God, be with me this morning as I open your word. Let it be your word that speaks forth and change our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. We're continuing our study in the book of James. And we're going to be in chapter four. And let me remind you why we're in the book of James. The series title is Real Faith, Real Faith, which implies that there is a fake faith. It implies that there is a chance we could be walking through life like those in Israel who are examples of those who thought they knew God, but their life displayed they did not. And when it came down to the heart of the matter, which God cares about, God was able to see into the hearts of people and see that they really did not love him, that their hearts, like the Pharisees, were far from him, though their lips praised him. And so one of the reasons we're in the book of James is the very reason that the book was written was to call the church to a genuine faith to cause us to stop, to think, and respond appropriately to what God's calling us to do. And church, this is a time for us to be introspective, to think inwardly. It's a time to allow for the Spirit to either encourage our hearts, if that's what we need, or convict our hearts, or maybe for the first time ever, it could be if those who are watching or someone here does not actually know God, you do not have that relationship with God. James is revealing 
what the symptoms of someone who doesn't know God looks like, what type of life they live, what will be manifested so that we can know, man, I'm not there and I need God and we turn our face to him and be saved. Today's a big one. The title is Why There's No Peace. Look into the world and you'll find no shortage of unrest, fighting, and lack of peace. No peace. Don't just look in the world. How about your own heart? What about our own life? Does it seem like most of our life is a clamorous effort for joy and peace and love only to find the experience is mostly that of anger, arguing, fighting, bitterness, grudges, lust, frustration, confusion, discontentment, unhappiness, wrath, and we can make the list go on, could we not? Take your pick. There's no shortage of therapists, psychologists ready to help you deal with the unrest in your heart, though sadly, I'm afraid that help may only be perpetuating the problem that James is going to show us today. The problem that's in our soul, no peace, it's everywhere. And marriages, among teenagers, among our relationships, within our car when we're on the road, in our finances, in our jobs, in our relationships, with our bodies, on social media, and in the church, you can find the evidence of no peace manifested in what we're going to see today, everywhere. A never-ending strife that infects us all, causing the heart to chase anything that we think will heal it and help it. Today, we're going to see exactly, exactly what the problem is. And we're going to see the hope of what to do about it. So I want to show you this today. I want to show you why there's no peace in our life. Why there may be no peace in your life right now as I speak to you. And then what the Bible says we must do about it in order to experience the peace that we're all looking for. James chapter four, and here's what I want us to do. I want us to read verses one through 10, and then we're gonna talk about it. James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Wow. A heavy scripture. It's one that doesn't leave us clapping our hands, but appropriately so. I want us to remind us of some scripture before the context of what we're reading in. 
We have to go back a few weeks when Todd preached. He taught us about wisdom that comes down from above and wisdom on earth. And so this is the state of mind that James is in when he writes these 10 verses. So go back just a few verses with me and let us read chapter three, starting in verse 13 and see what he's leading us to. He asked this question, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is in this mindset of trying to expose where real faith is in the hearts of the people who are particularly in the church and that you can see the conduct of people. If you could look deep into our hearts, you could see the motivation. If you look at the outflow and the fruit of someone's life, if it's these things, clamoring and strife and fighting and jealousy and selfish ambition, he says, you can be sure that that is a sign that they're not a living according to God's wisdom, but from earthly wisdom. That's how everyone without God acts. And obviously this was in the church and he's having to remind them, hey, dead faith Dead faith will not manifest these things. And if these things are being manifested in your life, and so now he's going to go even more detailed into how this earthly wisdom is showing up in the church. And he's going to answer the big question, kind of the big question we're asking. He says this, here's the big question in verse one of chapter four, as we get into it, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Basically this, what is causing war and fighting and unrest what is it that's causing this that's leading to no peace? That's a big question. That's a big question I think we all want to know. But I think we would answer it in many different ways. Many different people would answer the reason or the problem to why there's fights and unrest and quarrels in our lives. And I think most of us, if, if, we're, if we're honest, we're tempted to try to point the, the problem at other people or to really what are actually symptoms. So look what he says here. He's going to answer it. And I want, us, I want us to remind us of this. I want us to see through this passage that there are, there are some things that we must be willing to do to deal with this. And the first thing is this. We have to be honest and admit what the problem actually is. Admit it. Our passions, our desires, our lusts are the problem. That is what's causing fights and unrest and quarrels among us. He asked the question and he says this, is it not this? I'm gonna give you the answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Let's talk about that word passion. It's where we get the word hedonism. Let me define that word. It's, it's a word where someone is living their life totally defined by experiencing pleasure. Pleasure, appealing to the senses. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's used most of the time in a bad connotation. In this connotation, it is bad. Is it not this? Your passions deep within you, that desire and lust for the pleasures of life. He's saying this is the problem. And if you see the symptom of unrest, no peace and fighting, 
That's, that's an indicator of the issue. That's not the problem. But we think it is, don't we? Because we try to deal with the symptom all the time. I just want to feel different. I just want the fighting to stop. I just want my kids to stop. I just want my husband or my wife to stop. I just want the symptom to change. But we don't really want to deal with the actual problem because guess what? We start getting down to our idols. We actually start attacking what is potentially our God and we don't want to mess with that. And when you get close to it and you start exposing it, the fighting gets worse because we don't want to deal with the actual problem. In our own life, if we're gonna go from the road of unrest to the road of peace, we have to first be honest with ourselves about what the problem is. Our passions are at war within us. Think about it with your soul. There are these desires within you, we all know it. We all know what it feels like to have longings, lust, desire, strong desire that takes up our mental space, keeps us up in the middle of the night, creates this anxiety and this expectation to where we feel like if I don't get what I want, what I think that I need, then I'm going to go crazy. I actually think that this is going to bring me what I need. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be so unhappy until I get it. And we live in a world, don't we, where people are so depressed, so unhappy, so anxious, never actually dealing with what the actual problem is always just trying to change the symptom, change the symptom, but never dealing with what's causing it on the inside. These desires and these passions that are causing us to be at war with ourselves on the inside. And then they cause us to fight amongst one another. Don't we see it with our kids, right? I mean, you can see it when a kid has a toy, the other kid doesn't. As Soon as that kid sees it, they're filled with envy and jealousy and they want it and they try to take it. And then if they can't have it, then they at least want that other person not to have it. Because if I can't have it, they can't have it either. It's not just children. We grow up and we get really good at doing that same thing and excusing it. Children are just more open and honest about it. This is what James is starting to put his finger on and poke at in this passage. Admit it, your passions are the problem, and he's going to give two proofs, two proofs to this. The first proof is this in verse 2. He shows that they are the things that are leading to conflict. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You're like, I've never murdered anyone. Jesus has shown us very clearly that according to him, whoever looks at his brother with hate has committed murder in the heart. You don't have to actually physically kill someone to be a murderer. There's something that's happening in the heart that might make you guilty of it. But he would include both, both actual murder and the spiritual murder of the heart. You desire and you can't, uh, you desire and do not have, so you murder. He says this, you covet, I want, and you cannot obtain, so what? You fight and you quarrel. Proof is this, they lead to conflict. The passions are the problem because those desires on the inside is what's leading to the fighting. Do you see this? So many times, so many times we spend our life trying to address the symptom of the problem and not the problem itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's kind of like when you have a, a sickness. You have something on the inside and what we don't, we don't care about the microscopic thing that's causing the problem. We just care about the headache we have. 
or the cough that we're experiencing or the stuffiness that we're experiencing or the nausea that we're experiencing. And so all of our effort goes in trying to change the symptom. But we know deep down, if you want to deal with a disease, you have to remove it. Our desires are the source, our heart and the things that it desperately wants that it's willing to fight for, excuse fighting for, excuse murdering for. That's the issue. We get to our life and then we say, yeah, but, but you don't understand that this, this what, but, they, but they, but you understand if I don't get this, then that. We constantly excuse these passions and excuse the symptoms of fighting because we think, well, this is a worthy reason to fight. And here's a big Christian truth I want us to not miss. When it comes to Christianity and following Christ, the ends does not justify the means. The means will always supersede the end. Because with Christianity, doing the right thing may actually lead to more pain in your life. It may actually lead to you getting killed for standing up for Jesus. It may not lead to the very thing you want to happen. So Jesus comes and he says, I want to change people whose lives are changed from the inside out, who have the character and are conformed to the image of my son that are salt and light everywhere you go because they are different from the inside out. And the means at which you go about life is what's important to God. How many times we can deceive ourselves, even in the church, but I have this great, grandiose thing I want to do for God, and just people are getting in the way. If they just get out of the way and let me do it, God would be served. All the while, we're deceived because we think we're going to something great, because the end's great. All the while, the means to get there is stepping over and dividing and fighting with our brothers and sisters, showing symptoms that we're not living according to the wisdom that comes from above. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, worldly wisdom. Remember, wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Proof number two of why our passions are the problem is because they never give you what you're seeking. They never actually get you to the road you're trying to get to. And I need to explain what I mean by this in this verse. Look at the end of verse two. He says this. I'm sorry, verse three, look at verse three. Forgive me, my eyes are still blurry from my tears, so I'm looking at the wrong verses. It's the end of verse two, I was right the first time. He says this, you do not have because you do not ask. And he says, you do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Our desires never give us what we're seeking. Now, if you read this on the surface, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. We could be confused. And some uh, people will take this verse and say, if you want a Ferrari, just pray for it. If you don't have it, it's because you're not asking for it. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is dealing with the matters of the heart. He's saying this, what you are really seeking is the joy and the peace that you think that these things will bring that you desire. So why does anyone do anything? Why do any of us desire certain things and, and spend money, energy, and effort to get things? It's because we actually think that they're going to bring contentment, peace, and satisfaction, and joys. All the things that the soul that God has made for us to experience that we're lacking, we know something's wrong, 
We pursue these desires because we think it's going to give us that. That's ultimately why we do it. Let me give you an update on my cereal problem I mentioned a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here, I talked about how I have this problem late at night. All day, I spend time saying, I, I, I'm not going to give in to eating Cinnamon Toast Crunch at 10 o'clock at night. I'm not going to do it. And so I have been horribly inconsistent since then, even though I admit it's a problem because that, that, that the time of night just comes and I'm just like, you know what, I, I, I just feel that little bit of hunger and there'll be a little bit of comfort that's going to come from eating the Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And it's even worse. I, I, I do this thing where it's like, you know what, here's this other type of weird cereal I've never heard before that my kids have that's like an experimental cereal. Why don't I mix them together and see what they taste like? It's like I just, I just go full in. And so I get Cinnamon Toast Crunch at 10 o'clock right night, all the inside. It's like, you know you're going to regret this. You know you're going to regret it. You know you're not going to be glad you did this. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm, I'm just, I want it so bad. And so what do I do? I pour this like chocolatey, marshmallowy like filled thing on top of the cinnamon. A little, little bit of milk. And then I do like a splash of almond milk on top because then I feel better, like somehow I've made it healthier. And I sit there in my bed and I eat it. All the while, I'm like experiencing pleasure and comfort. All the while in the back of my head, I'm like, this isn't, I, I know I'm, and here I am talking to you, admitting this. And everything inside of me says, I wish I would not have done that. I wish. There's nothing about what I did yesterday that's making me feel good now. Our passions are at war within us. They make us believe that if we have them and can obtain them, we will experience the joy and the peace that wisdom from above brings. And so he's saying this. He's saying, you do not have the peace and the joy that you're looking for because the source at which you're trying to get them will never bring those things. Look back at chapter one. You don't have to, but if you look back at chapter one, he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach and it will be given to him. And so you come here to chapter four and he says, you do not have the ultimate inner thing that you're looking for because you're not trying to get it from God. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't have peace because you're not trying to get it from God. You don't have peace because you're trying to get it in the world. And the constant experience is those things will never give you what you're seeking. So the passions are the problem. First proof is all they do is they create fight and conflict in our life. The second proof is this, the experience of pursuing those passions never give us what you and we are seeking. And then he says this. He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So maybe you're like, well, I do ask and God doesn't give it to me. I am asking God. But he's saying, even if you do ask, look and see that heart attitude. This is an arrogant attitude that says, I know what's best for my life above and beyond God. And if God's not given to me, he's being cruel, unfair, unkind, unjust, and he's playing with my soul because he's not giving the thing that I think I need. That's the spirit here. None of us have ever been guilty of that, have we? He says, you don't receive because you don't ask. But when you do ask, you're asking God to supply your worldly passions or you're asking God with the spirit where you think what he has for your life 
isn't best. Jesus told us, whoever asks you ask, it will be answered. You knock, the door will be open. You seek, it'll find. We're told anything we ask in his name, it will be given. But we have to understand, God is not going to give us our selfish desires just because we wanna spend it on our passions. And we, if we're honest with ourselves, we know the moments when we're seeking God and we're having a hissy fit and a temper tantrum because he's not giving us the things that we want. And then we accredit him with somehow being ungood because he's not supplying our passions. That's a hard one, isn't it, guys? We must go through this because we have one life. We do not know when we're gonna exit the world and we're gonna stand before God and give an account for everything done in the body. And only those with genuine faith will pass through judgment. This is worth going through. So what do we do about it? We've identified why there's no peace in our life. What do we do about it? First thing is this, we gotta look in the mirror. James has already talked about looking in the mirror in a few verses before. He talks about how the word of God is a mirror that you stare into. But the problem is, is we are hearers who are forgetful. We look into the mirror and then we walk away and forget what we saw. James is really gonna show us what we look like. And I'm going to ask us that we make ourselves look in the mirror and see who we really are. So look in the mirror. Here's what we're gonna find. It's not pretty. And this is just the, this is the case, but before I, before I read this, this is the case for those who do not know God and for those who are living according to their passions. This is not the case for God's people who are walking in genuine faith with him. When your passions are your God, he says this, you adulterous people. You know, there's an exclamation point. I need to read it like James probably was thinking it. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It means you're an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Every single one of us, when our passions are our God, the reality, about who we, the reality about who we are when we look in the mirror is not pretty. And he uses this word, adulterous people. Let's think about the word adultery, cheating, unfaithfulness, going to something else beside God. And in the case of our passions, our passions reveal what we truly serve, who our God really is. Our passions and our desires and the things we are willing to fight for, clamor for, argue for, experience unrest and no peace over to try to get and obtain are the indicator of what we're serving because that energy is meant to be given to God. But if we don't love God as the first and greatest commandment is God's desire, it's not saying I want you to follow the 10 commandments. No, I want your heart the greatest commandment is to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to be a hedonist, but that pleasure needs to be desired to come from me. I, you need to desire me more than anything. But when you start desiring and chasing after these other things, it's committing adultery, cheating on the one you're supposed to be married to. And in order for us to get away from experiencing the fighting and the quarrel and the unpeace, some things, these are things we must do if we want to get to pieces. We got we to admit what our problem is. We got to be honest, not prideful, 
honest about what the problem is, and we're gonna be willing to look in the mirror. How many times we like, we go past the mirror and we don't look? Because we just, we just wanna avoid what we already know is true about us, right? I think maybe girls have a problem with this more than guys do. Guys can look in the mirror, see something's wrong, and be like, eh, I don't care, walk away. Right? But it's like, I already know, I don't wanna face it, I just don't wanna look at it, I wanna try my best to ignore the reality of who I am. And, and what people get so mad when they hear a preacher get up and talk about sin. You know, you're hurting our self-esteem. No, I want to know truth. I am not interested with making myself feel better. I want to know who I really am. And the reality about who I am before a holy God is I do not match up. I do not measure up. None of us do. Living on planet Earth, our hearts are consumed with selfish desires that lead us to do horrible things and to hurt the people we love the most that we're closest to. And the things that we're willing to do show really the true condition of our heart. Adulterous people, sinners who are in desperate need of help. The next thing when we, I want you to do, I want us to do, is once we've looked in the mirror, we've come to terms with who we are, I want you to look at the creator. Look at the creator and notice one thing. When our passions are our God, he is extremely jealous. And this is a scary thing. He says this, chapter four, and then verse five. He says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Oh, man. All right, just look in the mirror. My passions make me an adulterer. My passions reveal that these things are my God not God, because I actually think they'll supply the joy that only God can. Look at the creator. And the reason I'm calling him the creator in this point is for those who are in this position, that's all God is to them is their creator, the one who made them. There's nothing personal in their relationship for him there, to them there. And what do you find? You find this disregard for scripture. It's like there's this, there's this collective theme through scripture that points to the jealousy of God over his people. And James is saying to this, do you just disregard, is it to no purpose for you that the scripture says that he yearns jealously? I mean, think about the description of, of what that would mean to yearn jealously. God gives us the marriage relationship to help us understand this because you, you know, your husband or your wife starts being unfaithful to someone else or if someone else starts interfering on something that is between you two, to that person that you guys belong to each other, that you're supposed to be faithful to? What, what, what type of emotion is jealousy? I mean, that's one of the most powerful, burning emotional experiences of life. Yearning jealously. I want, that's mine. I want it. Give it to me. Do not take it from me. That is mine, God's saying. I'm yearning jealously for what? The spirit inside of you that I have made. I've made it and it dwells within you. I've made it for me and I, I hardwired it to want to love me and seek me and to serve me and be faithful to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing the people that I have made and been gracious to and kind to and have spent, given my only son for, take that spirit that I've made and serve worthless things with it. I'm yearning jealously for it. Give it to me. Look at the creator, he's jealous. And scripture always tells us when God's jealousy is present, it's a very scary thing to stand before. 
his wrath follows. But don't get stuck there. Once you've looked to the creator, I want you to look to the father. I want you to say, yeah, he's jealous, but he's even more gracious. He's even more gracious. Look at verse six. He says this, but he gives more grace. It's beautiful. James is set up. He spent this whole time setting up how horrible we are, helping us see the truth, showing how angry and jealous God is so we could rightfully see that. But now we're ready to accept grace. Now we're ready to hear it. Now it's going to have the full impact. You mean like after all of this, after all that you've said, now that I know that I deserve the wrath of God and I've given what rightly belongs to him to worthless things, even after all of this, there stands a hand from the Father that is giving far more grace than any wrath or anger that we deserve. He gives more grace. But I want you to see this, this grace that God is freely giving, that is limitless, that is never ending, that never runs out. As Romans 6 says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, that our sins will never outweigh the grace of God on our life, which is a beautiful thing. I want you to know this, that that grace does not immediately affect everyone. There's only a certain type of person that gets to experience the grace of God that is so freely reached out. And look what he says here next. He says this. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How would these people be filled with pride? And actually, pride is the center of our heart that leads to every other wicked thing. Pride being, this is a word that gives us, it's a word that makes us think of this word being above then, where we think we are above others. We think we are above the law of God, that we think we are above condemnation, that we think we are uh, above the mirror that tells us we're adulterous and we're wicked. We think we're above. We think that in our gut and through our instincts that we can walk this life and we got it all figured out. We know who God is. We know where we're going. We know everything and there's nothing anyone can tell us. There's no spirit that can ever pierce through the rockness of our heart. And we're gonna walk in pride. The Bible says this, God's grace is there and it's there for everyone, but God is going to oppose the proud heart the heart that's not willing to be humble, that's not willing to take the lowly place where they recognize who they are before a holy God. And they recognize the part of wickedness that we've all played on planet earth. We recognize the condemnation that we rightfully deserve. Until someone gets there, they're never gonna care about the grace of God. The grace of God's not gonna be beautiful to them. It's not gonna be something they even reach out for because they're never gonna depend on God because they're depending on themselves. And they're also depending on the passions that they think are gonna bring the ultimate satisfaction that only God can. The psalmist says this, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is the fullness of joy. God has what we're looking for. God has what you're looking for. The things in the world, and as James says, the things that draw us away and entice us by our own desires, each and every one thing, single one of us has them. Do not be deceived by the promise of pleasure and joy and contentment they will bring. They will only lead to more misery and torment. 
look to the Father, not in pride, but in humility, and accept his grace. Now, let me say this. The grace of God means this. It is God giving you what you do not deserve. God's mercy is him not giving us what we deserve. His grace is him giving us what we deserve, what we do not deserve. He's given us his son, Jesus, his son who willingly paid the price, gave up his innocent life to pay the cost and the wages that our sins build up. He died once for all, Hebrews tells us, and that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But who are the people who call upon the name of the Lord? It's the humble. It's those who recognize who they really are. It's those who have took to look in the, taken a look in the mirror and not forgotten. It's those who realize like, man, I'm, I'm nothing before you, God, and I, I'm unworthy and I need your forgiveness. It's a, a state of humility. And I'm looking to you in dependence for the salvation I can't give myself. Humility. And for the believer, this is a constant reminder, constant preaching of the gospel. Real faith is constantly remembering this. It's not just something that happened years ago. It's something that is currently always happening as they are reminded, I am still in this body of death and the flesh within me is constantly like trying to pull me all over to all types of things that will not satisfy, but God is there. His grace is there. I'm gonna keep my eyes on the Savior. Church, do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you have real faith? Is God convicting you in your heart? You know what? I may have been doing this my whole life, just being associated and close to God and close to his people, but it's never been real and genuine for me because the passion in my life that is in my heart has always supplied the place where God should be, and I've never let him in. I've done a really good job at avoiding him getting in by changing the subject, and when I'm praying, distracting myself with other prayers and asking for different things, but that one thing that God's always saying, but that's what I want. I want your heart. I want your heart. It's like I'm so afraid to give it up. I'm so afraid to let him in. I'm so afraid to give this thing up because I want it so badly. I know what it's like to be there. I know what it's like as a 15-year-old to have the chasing hand of God on my life and indulging every day of my efforts into my desires, trying to find happiness in the, the, the prodigal son type of life. And you know what I found out after I got everything I wanted? It only left me more empty. And then when God was there with his hand saying, you know you need me, do you know what happened in my heart? As I realized, but God, I can't stop going down this path. I want these things. And as a 15-year-old boy, I cried out, so if something's gonna change, you have to do it because I can't. Some of us feel like we get to this moment, it's like God's been doing work, we feel convicted, but the enemy comes in and puts it all on your shoulders to figure everything out. No, 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 God wants a humble person. The Bible tells us that a broken and contrite heart God will never turn away from. That's what he's looking for. He will be there with you. You be broken before him. Humble yourself before him. Ask him to do the thing in your heart that you can't do and you know you can't do. That's the good news. You open your heart and say, God, I got this thing in my life. It's taken your place. I know it, but I can't get rid of it. Do something. Oh, that's asking for wisdom. That's seeking wisdom from above. He says he's gonna give it to you generously. 
He's going to be there with you. And you trust him that he's going to begin to weed that thing out of your life and replace it with the all-consuming pleasure of God and walking with him every day of your life. God, do that for us. So look at this final thing. Since we're talking about responding, James is going to talk about that. Now respond humbly and appropriately. He says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse seven, he's gonna give a list of things like that, that can sound overwhelming, but I want you just to pay attention to the heart here. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If we're gonna respond in humility, genuine humility, it's actually, going to, it's, it's, it's actually going to involve a response. It's like, how many times do we listen to the word of God, but we don't actually do the things that we know we should be doing, the things that will actually help, the things that will actually finally bust through the door and we'll have peace, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a fight for the idols of our heart the things we hold on, I mean, with a clenched fist, we hold on to, and we try to do everything else to try to bring the peace and the contentment of our heart and make us feel good with God, but the still small, quiet voice of the spirits, they're like, no, no, you're not gonna do that. No, I'm gonna keep bringing it up. I'm gonna keep bringing it up. You put that before me, mm-mm, mm-mm, that's God of your heart, I want that. No, that thing, you've, given, you've, given, you've, get, you've gotten rid of 80 billion thousand other things in your life that were easy for you to avoid getting rid of the one thing I'm asking you to get rid of and let me take its place. And so he says some of these things that would be the appropriate response of someone who truly feels the weight of who they are before God in humility. It would involve this submitting to God, a life where you're surrendering to him, where you're willingly submitting to his marching orders. I'm I'm willingly putting myself under submission to you. What do you want, master? Then he says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The reason that needs to happen is because when the, our passions are our God, really what it is is the devil is our God. Jesus says that, that if, you're, if God is not your God, your father, the devil is your God and you do what he wants. He's like, I want you to stop doing what he wants and start doing what I want. But it's gonna involve resisting him. Not so easily just giving in to those passionate emotions all the time. It's gonna start involving resisting. And he says this with a promise. If you do that, he will flee from you, just like he did from Jesus when he tempted Jesus three times, just like he will for you. Over a period of time, there will be suffering, Peter says. It'll be hard, but there'll be a time where he will flee from you because he knows he's not gonna be able to get you to come down the same path and serve him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The priest in the Old Testament was responsible for drawing near to God, which was a very terrifying thing because to draw near to God would have mean certain death if you weren't cleansed and your heart wasn't right. And so now we have this new picture of the, the freeness of drawing near to God we can because of the grace and the power of Jesus. You draw near to him, you draw near to him and God will draw near to you. He's not gonna run from you, he's gonna meet you. He then says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Some of us just need some simple repentance that needs to happen in our life. Just sins that are so easily besetting us that are just always there that we never do anything about. It's just time for us to repent of those things and give them to God. Confess them, ask for forgiveness. 
And then he says this, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He mentioned the double-minded in chapter one. He's, rem- he's bringing the double-minded here again, which would mean that you have two allegiances. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve the world and God. Purify your hearts, which means set them apart for me. Your heart's divided. You're gonna end up hating me and loving the world. You'll end up chasing the thing you really want. It's time to purify and set your heart f- apart for me. That's what God wants. And then he says this, which is an interesting one. Would you ever counsel someone to stop laughing and mourn and weep? To be sad? It's not saying be fake. It's not saying fake it. James is showing real faith, someone who has truly looked in the mirror, who has seen truly what's going on in their heart, is gonna respond appropriately. And mourning and weeping are gonna follow appropriately. It's the broken and the contrite heart before the Lord when the sinner recognizes the error of his way and the goodness of God. You know, you see these videos of these young people like destroying things in stores, right? They destroy it, like knock over a whole thing or they bust out a light and they're laughing the whole time, right? That's the most inappropriate response to what they just did. And you see it in youth, like, but, but then you look at this and you can see really like, well, what did I just do? What's the proper response? It's not laughter. It's not just everything's good. It's, you know what? I am crushed. I'm crushed by who I've been. God, I need you. That's the heart that God is looking for. And he will, it says here at the end of this, if you do this and you humble yourself before the Lord, let go of the pride, you let him in and you let him begin tenderly working on your heart, you humble yourself before the Lord, you just ask him to do what you can't, you look to Jesus in real faith, humble yourself, it says this, he will exalt you. You put it in his hand. But the issue is we live in pride, exalting ourselves, chasing our own passions, thinking they will bring the things we're looking for and they never do. The God who made you loves you with a love that's beyond anything we could comprehend. And he has given up his only son who died a horrible, painful death on the cross, rose from the dead so that you would have here and now the power available to you to experience forgiveness and experience a change of heart that God will do in you when you can't. He just wants us to see it and to respond with the heart of humility to him. And I promise you, you will see great change and joy and peace in your life because wisdom that comes from above and the fruit of the spirit being inside of you is joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and patience and self-control. Let's pray. Our wonderful heavenly father, may we be a people who do not walk in arrogance. Father, but a people who are always willing to admit where we have sinned and fallen away from you. And Father, I imagine that many of us here see those passions in our heart, our own personal desires that we have just elevated to the place that you belong. 
And God, we feel the impossible weight of our own strength being able to rid ourselves of those things. We just love it too much. God, I pray in this moment that you would invade and you would show us just the patient work where you take control, that if we just surrender ourselves to you and ask you to do the work, even over these desires, even if we don't have the whole plan figured out, but we just give it to you. And for the first time, breach through even our prayers and we bring that thing and expose it in the light. And we say, God, take care of this. I don't know how you're gonna do it. I don't know what you're gonna do, but take care of this. It is, it is dividing my loyalty from you and then trust you with it. God, thank you for your forgiveness and your goodness that is in Jesus Christ. And I ask that your spirit would be moving here and now in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.